created live on Fireside. Welcome, I'm Lori Lee Binstock, and this is a Trauma Survivor Thrivers Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me live on Fireside Chat, where you can be a part of the conversation as my virtual audience. I am your host, Lori Lee Vinstock. Everyone has an opportunity to ask me or our guest questions by requesting to hop on stage or sending a message in the chat box. I'll try to get to those messages, but we do ask that everyone be respectful. Today's guest is Stephen Mills. Stephen is the author of Chosen, a memoir of a boyhood stolen which tells the story of his childhood sexual abuse by a summer camp director, the lifelong journey of recovering from trauma, and his quest to stop a serial predator and find justice. He is honored to serve as an ambassador of Child USA, the leading nonprofit fighting for the civil rights of children. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Laurie. Well, you know, in the book, you discuss your experience with childhood sexual abuse, and it took place at a camp. Um, are you comfortable with sharing with our audience your story? Yeah, absolutely. That's what I do these days. I think <laughs> it's super important to make people aware of the risks to children in these settings and, and how to make them safer. Uh, so I went to this sleepaway camp uh, when I was first 10 years old, and then again when I was 11. Uh, when I turned 13, uh, right after my bar mitzvah, actually, I was raised Jewish, and this camp was run by a very trusted Jewish social service agency. Uh, there was a new director that summer, and uh, he was a highly revered social worker from the Bronx. We were all from New York. Most of the kids were from the Bronx and Brooklyn. I was from Long Island. And he was just this incredibly charismatic, streetwise, uh, charming guy who had, uh, you know, really won over not just everyone in the agency, but all the parents and the families and kids loved him. And uh, he, about a couple weeks into that summer, he began uh, showing me a lot of special attention, uh, you know, today what we call grooming uh, in all the classic ways. Uh, he spent special sort of one-on-one -on -one time with me, asked me lots of probing questions about uh, myself, my family. I had lost my father when I was four. He died of multiple sclerosis. And in retrospect, of course, all of this became clear to me as his screening process. He targeted uh, 11, 12, 13 year old boys and was, was really funneling them to find the ones that were uh, sort of most promising, if you will, as targets for sexual assault. And uh, I fit the classic profile, uh, a kid who was fatherless, uh, who had some problems at home with his stepfamily, who was very needy. And um, he took his time about it. That lasted uh, most of that summer. And it wasn't until that fall when he called up my mother and uh, prevailed on her to let me go with him up to camp in the off season, supposedly to help him with some projects. And that's where the sexual abuse actually began. Uh, we were isolated you know, 100 miles from home in the middle of the woods. Uh, and that was the first uh, 
the first time. It would go on for two years after that till I was 15. Wow. Did you, did you tell anyone about the experience? No, I didn't tell a soul. Uh, and I didn't tell a soul until eight years later. And we could talk about that a little bit because it's pretty dramatic and interesting what happened. But at the time, you know, like most kids, I had absolutely no frame of reference uh, for mm -hmm. what he was doing to me. Um, it certainly wasn't, and I, I really like to point this out, in my mind, it wasn't sexual, meaning um, it was violence. And I experienced it as a near-death experience, which is what it was. I mean, my body went into shock. I couldn't speak. I was, I experienced myself outside my body mm -hmm. looking down on the scene. Um, again, not unusual uh, for uh, people experiencing trauma. And I had, this guy was married. He had a kid. Sex never entered my mind as a motivation for him. Uh, I had no clue what it was about, but my 13-year-old, um, the all I could come up with at that age was that for some reason he had taken me hostage and was doing this to blackmail me because now he could tell my parents and hold this over me. You know, so that's where my head was at, instantaneous shame and guilt and fear uh, of him about what might happen next. So talking about it was the last thing I was going to do. What did he say to make you believe that he was going to tell your parents? Did he say he was going to tell your parents that he was doing this? No, um, he didn't have to. And again, this is one of those things that for myself and most survivors, I know certainly most male survivors, there's no need for a predator to threaten explicitly. It's all implicit. The control, all that grooming that occurred over the summer, where bit by bit, day by day, week by week, I grew to trust him as a uh, reliable authority figure, really a surrogate father figure. That's what he was to me and to so many boys. There was a very intense bond there. So... By the time the trap springs shut and he began sexually abusing us, the betrayal is so profound and the confusion is so deep that um, there was no thought in my head that I could ever defy him. You know, I was so confused about here. I was attached to this guy who, um, you know, I revered by that point doing this horrible thing to me that, um, and also remember it was all, um, overlaid with intense fear of him physically. And so, you know, he was twice my size, really big guy until my thirties, when I really started grappling with this, you know, my nightmares were just my dream life and nightmares were just filled with fear of, you know, sort of large monstrous type characters pursuing mm -hmm. me. So, you know, at the first moment of trauma, the there was a whole world of terror of 
someone out to get me that really dominated my psyche, you know, for a, for a long, long time. So the, the thought to tell someone, uh, he didn't need to say a thing. He understood whether consciously or unconsciously that we were utterly terrified of him. And by the way, many of my fellow victims, um, are still terrified of him and the guy's been dead 30 years. Mm. So, uh, you know, the psychic toll that was taken and the fear that gets embedded in the nervous system runs very, very deep. Wow. I, I'm so sorry that that happened to you, but I, I'm, I'm amazed about your, your bravery into, in sharing. Were there, were there noticeable changes in you after the abuse or during the abuse that was noticeable to parents or educators? Certainly to my mother and my stepfather, and they were really at a loss to account for it. I went from being a pretty sweet kid, um, very trusting, a uh, lot of friends, pretty, you know, your average 13-year-old, you know, did well in school, played Little League, um, had a, you know, had a good social life and was outwardly, I was always introverted, but I was very open uh, and vulnerable. And after that fall, uh, when I was 13, um, I underwent a huge personality change. Um, I was very depressed, withdrawn, uh, and extremely dark, uh, and suddenly very cynical and, um, oppositional, you know, in the family. And, um, you know, my mother in particular, who I already had somewhat of a strained relationship with, which is sort of a side story about the step family, but things went from bad to much, much, much worse. And, um, you know, it, but it would be another almost two decades before and when I disclosed to her in my early 30s that she realized, oh, <laughs> that's, that's what happened when you were 13. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine that at 13 there's a lot of there's a lot of changes yes. without the the you know event of abuse. So when yeah. abuse happens it's it, it may seem to parents that oh this is just puberty or this is just what's what happens at this age. Yeah, that's exactly right and it's also of course what makes it doubly tragic that mm -hmm. so often uh of course kids can be sexually abused sadly at any age, uh, right. even in the, it's quite common, uh, in cases at, at puberty, both boys and girls. And there's already so much change afoot and our hormones running rampant and a lot of confusion about sexuality and figuring things out and your identity. And so, um, you know, throwing this bomb into the mix, it really detonates and scrambles everything and to have um makes it much much tougher you know to find your way out of that labyrinth mm. so you said you you mentioned that you shared this 
abuse, you you talked about it. You told somebody. You said eight years after. That's right. Yeah, when I was when I was um, twenty three is when I discovered that this guy was abusing boys at a different uh, summer camp in a different state. And, um, you know, I hope your listeners will read the book because it's kind of amazing. It's a great um, story that ensued around that. But suffice to say that uh, the light bulb went off in my brain where I suddenly, when I was confronted with the fact of his abusing other boys, a lot of things happened. Um, I instantly understood that what had happened to me. Uh, and I had, for all those years, when I let myself think about it consciously, which was very seldom, because I always tried to stuff it down and not think about it at all, mm-hmm. But when I did, I was sure that I was the only one. I mean, I had spent all those years from 13 on really trying to disappear uh, and certainly not think about that. And, uh, but as soon as I realized there were other victims, it was in my face and I couldn't deny it anymore. So, you know, first of all, I understood that I'd been sexually abused I understood that he was doing it to others uh, and all of the, everything that I had um, really buried in the way that trauma works, you know, our, our, our bodies are wired to protect us so that we can go on with life and survive. And that's why, you know, trauma is not shared with the conscious mind. You know, my conscious mind was not, if I had allowed myself the morning after the first sexual assault to feel what I had really been feeling, I, you know, my head would have exploded. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, so it would take decades to do that. In the meantime, I went about my life. I went back to school, you know, Monday morning and functioned as best I could, though completely dissociated. We could talk about that a little bit more, just about how um, how trauma works that way. And but eight years later, all of that came rushing back because I couldn't hold it at bay anymore. You know, all of the mechanisms and coping strategies I had unconsciously developed to stuff down that experience and not look at it failed in an instant, and I was overwhelmed with what I had experienced. Mm. I mean, it was the moment of truth, right? So I, I instantly, because I felt overwhelmed, I spoke to my best friend. I almost didn't, it wasn't uh, a choice per se. I was really forced. I, I was just slammed into the wall and knew I had to tell someone. I told him and, uh, while he was um, shocked, he was also not surprised because the first really? thing he said was, I went to an all boys school and this shit happened all the time, mm. which was kind of blew my mind because I had never had an inkling into uh, any of this. 
right? And of course, as we know today, it's pervasive. You know, one out of four girls, one out of six boys. That was my first insight into that. Uh, but then, so that was tremendous. Disclosing was tremendously helpful, but it did not in any way um, spare me from going through what I needed to go through and without, which was for the next four years, not having any therapeutic support or any guidance or any real uh, way of knowing how to address or heal from what had happened, I just went down a rabbit hole of self-destructive behavior. Yeah. Uh, everything that I had kept at bay really swallowed me. And um, I used all of the, you know, all of the classic things that a lot of victims, but especially men, um, you know, men are much less likely than women to reach out for help. And, uh, you know, the general pattern is that doesn't happen till our thirties. In the meantime, right. we drink and drug and, uh, do a lot of irresponsible sexual things and try to kill ourselves. And if you make it through the other end of that tunnel, then you go for help. And that's what happened to me. Wow. I, I, you know, you talked about disassociating. Uh, I am a childhood sexual abuse survivor as well. Um, yes. I was sexually abused by my biological father. Um, so oh. that has his own baggage with it. Um, Absolutely. But I, I think it's really important to talk a little bit about the dissociating because it's, yeah. it's you're basically numbing yourself from yes. all things. Um, but I'd like you to elaborate. Yeah, well, again, it really goes back to that initial experience where, as I mentioned before, I left my body. So that's the body's really first line of defense uh, is to escape the attack uh, and to um, protect oneself. And it, it really wasn't until, and I talk about this in the book, it wasn't until my 30s when I, I happened to uh, discover ecstasy, MDMA. Mm -hmm. uh, and with my girlfriend at the time, the woman who had become my wife, um, we did a series of, this was 1985, the year MDMA was made illegal. Uh, but we were really experimenting with it and very quickly realized that it gave me access to that experience of the mm. original experience of dissociation. And it would allow me to reenact it without the terror, yes. which is really. Uh, and so it enabled me to go there and see how my body did what nature intended, uh, which was to protect myself, uh, to prepare to die because the nervous system felt like it was going to die and mm -hmm. flooded me with endorphins to make the end as painless as possible. Of course, I didn't die. But until my early 30s, I was still living in that suspended state of thinking I was about to die. My, right. my whole being, my nervous system was living in that dissociated state where somehow I was outside 
my body. I was no longer embodied. I felt that very clearly two days after the first assault when I went back to school. I, it was as if I was outside my life, not inside my life. And this is very hard to describe unless you've experienced it, but I really felt like I was looking at my life through glass yeah. and wasn't participating in it. And my emotions were absent um, in the way that I had known them until the Friday before that. You know, if I was, had been with my friends and we were playing touch football and I felt scored a touchdown and felt ecstatic, I didn't feel any of that anymore. Uh, so, you know, the emotions had been the authentic life of the body and the emotional sensations that emanate from the body uh, had been squashed and were gone. And I was inhabiting some life adjacent to my own, my old life, but it was um, a very, very, um, it was almost like a void. So that, um, to me, the healing process is really about re-embodying life, you know, the life as it's meant to be lived, you know, the authentic re-inhabiting one's body, um, reuniting the body-mind mm -hmm. and spirit uh, so that there's one united flowing process that's natural, you know, and not uh, fragmented. And, you know, that's been, that's been a lifelong journey because I can still... Uh, in a moment of whether it's anxiety or seeing a person on the street who looks like the predator or, you know, whatever it is, it can trigger a dissociative moment or moments or worst case, uh, like right now when I'm dealing with, I've brought up uh, a legal claim under the Child Victims Act in New York against the agency that employed uh, the sexual abuser, mm -hmm. uh, if, if I feel attacked, which I have by them through court proceedings, you know, I yeah. can feel dissociated for an entire day, but, you know, I recognize that it's, um, that is a way dialed back version of what I experienced in my teens and twenties, uh, and even thirties. Um, you know, I've, I've, come so far in reintegrating uh, who I really am. Wow. And and the book helped with that too, of course. I'm sure. Uh, have you done work with somatic experiencing? Because I feel like what you're saying is, is everything that I've learned about somatic experiencing. Yeah, I have. And I've, uh, you know, I've, Oh my gosh. You know, I've, uh, I've worked in so many modalities, uh, because in my thirties and forties and fifties, uh, <laughs> I, I'm a big believer in, uh, trying anything and everything and pursue what works. Yep, you know, so I, I starting in my early thirties, you know, I did talk therapy for many years, uh, which at the time was 
you know, this was my early thirties. I was living in New York city. Everyone was starting to go to therapy. <laughs> you know, it seemed like mm -hmm. the thing to do. <laughs> and, and talk therapy was fantastic and a wonderful therapist. And he helped, uh, although I got to say prior to that, the reason I got to talk therapy was just serendipitously. And it's an episode in the book. Um, I had been working with a psychiatrist who did biofeedback. This was 1981 mm -hmm. in New York before PTSD was a thing, even in the, even in the, um, you know, it wasn't in the DSM actually it wow. entered the DSM that year, 1981. But I had, after that four year period of literally trying to disappear myself, I wound up, um, in a complete mental, physical breakdown and was referred by a friend's father who was a um, neurosurgeon to the psychiatrist who did biofeedback. And then this, uh, uh, this psychiatrist, his name was Kenneth Greenspan and he ran the stress disorders uh, department at Columbia Presbyterian in New York. I went in and I spoke to him just for a few minutes. I told him, I gave him the backstory and he said, you've got shell shock. And cause in those days, that's what PTSD was called shell shock, mm -hmm. which was baffling to me cause I'd never been in combat right. and had no clue what he was talking about. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't make the connection with the abuse. Cause again, that was still very deeply hidden and uh, I never talked to him about it. And But after a year with him, he knew that there was something buried there, and he sent me to talking therapy. I did that for many years. I then uh, I reached a certain point with talking therapy where I realized that it would only take me so far and that I really needed to start exploring how this was manifesting in my body. Uh, and that's when I... I first tried bioenergetics uh, and then various Rosen method body work, which is a wonderful modality. Um, Marion Rosen was the founder of that, somatic experiencing. You know, you name it, I tried it. And, and also psychedelics, which, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in a, in a therapeutic kind of way, although not like today where there are uh, you know, clinical trials ongoing where you have a, uh, a guide uh, and a very controlled set and setting. This was more, as I said before, experimental, but very, very helpful for me in accessing um, places in the mind body that I couldn't get at through talking therapy. There were just too many defenses up, you know, to get through them. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I'm a huge advocate for psychedelics. I have um, been working with psychedelics for the last couple of years and the, it, it, I really cannot, I cannot, I don't recognize who I was two years ago because <laughs> I, I, you know, it was just two years ago when I actually set, talked about the abuse. But since, you know, I've done the somatic experiencing, um, um, I have a psychedelic integrative um, therapist and, um, you know, it has 
really done amazing things to the point I'm actually I'm, I'm creating a, a filming a documentary focused on psychedelic healing. <laughs> and Great. I, I mean, it, it is incredible what you can access that yeah. you couldn't before that when you access the subconscious right. um, and being able to heal that. Mm -hmm. Well, I remember hearing, I heard one of your podcasts where you said you took psilocybin when you were 16. Ah, yes. It's the kind of party <laughs> setting, but it immediately took you back to, to the, the abuse. abuse. And that's astounding, right? It, right. It, it just takes you right there at what, and which of course makes you wonder what the hell's going on every minute of every day that I can't go there. And that mm -hmm. tells you just how powerful the defenses are, you know, if in that instant it takes you right to what needs to be seen. Yeah. I, I mean, that really scared the hell out of me. <laughs> um, uh -huh. yeah, but, you know, knowing what I know now, it's like the, the, the medicine, the plant medicine was so intelligent. It was intelligent enough to tell me that this was controlling me. I just had no clue at that time. Um so yeah, Why would you? Um, I, right, exactly. Because at that point, I had disassociated. I tried to not think about it. I suppressed mm -hmm. it as far down as I could. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I I do want to ask because you know, as a parent, this kind of scares me too. You know, what sure. do you tell parents who are scared to send their kids to sleepaway camp? Because mm -hmm. um, I can imagine for you who've who's had this experience, it is frightening. Yeah. It is. I think it's it's crucial, I think, for parents to have um, a very healthy dose of vigilance because um, child sexual abuse is real. It's more pervasive than um, most people care to accept. Uh, and in both, um, in all youth serving organizations, kids' activities, schools. I had a half-day conference yesterday with a national group that focuses on sexual abuse in schools. It's a huge problem, properly screening teachers, and there are um, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of teachers who continue to evade um, the screening procedures that are in place by moving from school to school. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, at, at the same time, uh, to just educate oneself as a parent uh, to, you know, what you can do. And, and I'll talk about that in one second, but it, it's also crucial, and this is where most of my time in advocacy is going these days, is to put um, really strong, enforceable safeguards in place in, in all of these organizations. So it's one of the main things I'm advocating for with Child USA is what they call the gold standard. Uh, the gold standard of child protection was um, devised last year after Child USA um, convened a panel of um, policy experts to study all the cases of child sexual abuse in the church, in the athletic community, you know, the gymnasts, um, debacle, mm -hmm. the Boy Scouts, and to really start with um, reality. Because believe it or not, a lot of these places had uh, and 
continue to have so-called safeguards in place. So what failed, right? Where did things go wrong? And then based on what actually happened, and, the, and they interviewed thousands and thousands of victims, they devised a, a set of prevention measures which together comprise the gold standard. And, and they're now, uh, the approach, which I think is brilliant actually, is to use insurance companies to force youth serving organizations uh, to implement it and enforce it. Uh, so that, and, and some insurers are beginning to do this, uh, so that if you do not implement these strong standards then you can't get insurance uh, and you get um, reviewed every year. So this is, we're just at the front end of that because, um, you know, for the most part, that's not the case. Typically, there are either no good protocols in place or they're there and they're just paid lip service to and the culture of these places hasn't really changed. For parents, um, the, and I, I'd be happy to send you links that you can post with your show notes about where people can learn more because there are fantastic organizations working I on this yes. yeah, and helping to educate parents. But, you know, a number one is vetting uh, any place where your kid is going. And, um, and if it's overnight camp, all the more so because that has more obvious challenges. You know, you've got kids away for not one night or two nights, but two weeks or four weeks or eight weeks. Mm -hmm. And that puts just, there's just way more room uh, for problems there because you've got who's ever running the camp in that role of in loco parentis and, uh, you know, parenting your kids. Uh, and you want to know what their, what protocols they have and don't be shy about asking them and see how seriously uh, they take the issue, the threat of child sexual abuse, because, you know, trust me, every single overnight camp has dealt with it, mm. um, either well or very badly. So um, a lot of, if, if the folks running the camp are good, they will take your questions seriously and sit down with you and show you what the protocols are and how they follow them. And if they try to blow you off or tell you it's not really a problem, or we've, we've never had that issue before, I would run the other way mm. um, because they are trying to snow you. Um, and, but, you know, on the home front, to me and to most experts, the most important thing is open lines of communication with our kids, yeah. starting to talk to them early about, uh, of course, anything to do with sex is fraught because it's sex and we live in this very puritanical culture and have real problems uh, with, for example, talking about body parts, right? So the earlier you begin that process, the better. You know, yeah. we teach our kids uh, when you get to the corner, look both ways before crossing the street. Um, we should... And we repeat it ad infinitum until they get the message. And it's no big deal. They just come to embody it, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> we need to do the same around people touching 
our kids inappropriately. And, you know, there are different ways to do that with kids in terms of, you know, their age. No one. Yeah. No. First of all, letting them name their, you know, you call a penis, a penis and a vagina, a vagina, you know, mm -hmm. so, you know, immediately gets from a young age, uh, you know, what these body parts are and you're comfortable with them and no one gets to touch those. Uh, and you have the right to tell someone to stop and you tell us right away. And if, if you talk about these things with kids, um, early and often it takes on, you know, the same, um, quality as stopping at the corner and looking both ways. It's just not a biggie. Yeah. This is what we do, you know, to maintain our safety. And, um, it's never too late to start that process and kids who have, uh, an open channel of communication with parents and vice versa, um, are much less likely uh, to, let me put it this way, they're much more likely to disclose if the worst happens. Mm -hmm. And that's crucial if the worst happens, intervening early. Uh, and, um, and beyond that, it's less likely to happen to begin with because you will have alerted them to the fact, right, that there are troubled adults who do these things to kids mm -hmm. so that it is not a bolt out of the blue as it yeah. was with me. Yeah. I, we, we talked to our daughter about it. We've been talking to our daughter about it for forever. It seems like, you know, getting those books about body parts and naming them. And, you know, I, I, I feel like I can trust her um, mm -hmm. to tell me things. I mean, you know, there was a friend who, showed his penis and started shaking it around. She, my daughter's seven, but th this friend was a friend's little brother. So he's four. So I don't really think he knew what he was doing, but sure. my people telling me this. And so then I was like, okay, well, I will talk to their mother. And then mm -hmm. I talked to their mother and their mother was like, oh, she already told me I've talked to my son about this. Amazing. So that made me feel so good that she yeah. would feel comfortable. Um, for my son, I'm, I'm not as I'm, I, I'm, you know, I don't know if he would be, would be comfortable telling me something like that. Um, even though we kind of do the same things, we read the same books. Mm -hmm. Um, but he's only four. So, yeah. you know, she's seven and, and, and is able to speak to us like that. Um, but yeah. And, you know, with boys, I'm sorry to no, no, please. interrupt you there. Yeah, so that, that sort of raises a whole nother facet of this, which is how boys differ from girls, you know? Mm -hmm. And of course, that's a that could be a long conversation, but I'll just, you know, some things we do know are that, um, you know, boys in general have more trouble um, talking about these things. And if they've been abused, much more trouble um, disclosing. Mm -hmm. Uh, and which I, you know, mentioned before about how most men doesn't happen till their thirties, if at all. Uh, and just to give you an example, so some of the, in my book, of course, I talk about other victims who I tracked down in the 1980s and some of them had been married for 
you know, 15 years and had never told their wives. Yeah. So, you know, that's a pretty good indicator. You know, men, um, we tend to stuff our emotions, right? That's not, that is not news. And on this issue in particular, there's a big difference between boys and girls that goes back to the first moment of abuse. Um, with, with boys, there's a deep sense of complicity and shame that comes from the act itself when the body is responsive because the boy body responds to any touch by getting an erection. Right. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what is touching you. It can be an inanimate object. When right. you're 13, you're going to get an erection. And a uh, predator knows that. But I didn't. Right. And no man I know knew it. So you're like, what the hell? Why is my body doing this? I, you know, and almost every predator will suggest that you are inviting it. You want this. Look at what your body's doing. So yeah. it's the sense of betrayal by one's own body that creates really deep shame that for many men never goes away. Uh, and it becomes almost impossible to break out of that, much less talk about it and, and disclose. Um, and this, you know, this is why, um, you know, a lot of times culturally, if you want to understand, well, let me just want mention one other thing first. You know, layered on top of that are a couple of other things on, on top of that shame. One is the sense of I'm weak, right? And our culture is contempt for weakness in men. And mm. any boy who has survived the grade school playground understands, you know, that we worship power and strength and just look at our politics, for God's sake. And, uh, you know, to be weak for a boy or a man um, is uh, really challenging. You know, we're not gonna, we don't go there. And, um, and in addition to that, there's also a lot of sexual confusion and which is a whole separate conversation, but you know, whether you're uh, straight by nature, straight or gay or bi or uh, trans or, you know, fluid, it, there is a lot of sexual confusion that happens when your first sexual experience is someone raping you. Mm. And it's just can take a lifetime to unravel that uh, when you have no choice in the matter because you can never walk that one back and really know. So, um, but that said, in terms of how men deal with this, you know, you can look at, there's very few movies about the sexual abuse of boys, but the ones that there have been are really very telling. Um, like Prince of Tides, uh, Mystic River, Sleepers. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen these movies, but yeah, those, are, yeah, those come to mind. And it's, it's like the message from those movies in our culture is very clear. It's that the sexual abuse of boys um, is this horrific, dehumanizing um, event, uh, which you should never, ever talk about, ever, mm. right? And the only recourse 
to a man is revenge. And, you know, in revenge in the most violent, bloody manner possible. Um, you know, so this is why at the end of Sleepers, you know, they get the revenge on the guy who, the guy who had uh, sexually assaulted them in juvenile detention, you know, a decade earlier. Um, and there's a revenge theme, of course, in uh, Prince of Tides and Mystic River, right? So this is like standard... This is the American archetype, you know, mm. so boys who are, uh, who are victimized, um, you are allowed one response only, you know, and that is kill the guy wow. and, you know, talking about it. No, doing somatic experiencing. Uh, -uh. so wow. we've got a long way to go on that front, but you know, the great news is there, there are fantastic resources available these days for boys and men who are sexually abused. And, uh, you know, there's malesurvivor.org, there's one in six. Um, there are just these, you know, fantastic places that have, you know, male survivors got 15,000 registered users online, you know, in forums and chat groups. And, you know, there are um, a therapy directory for therapists who specialize in sexual abuse of boys. And so if you're, if and when uh, a guy is ready to address this, there's so much support out there, you know, which was non-existent, you know, when I was in my 20s and even 30s. Um, well, you are a, in, an incredible resource. Um, and I, I'm so, I so greatly appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and advocating um, for children and really seeking justice to all these huge institutions that have historically covered up, you know, these abuses of power. Yes. So I applaud you. Thank you so much. Is there anything you would like to add? Just that I, I think the what you just said about institutions is they are so slow to change and they only change in the face of public pressure uh, and on this front, pressure from parents. And so, you know, I just encourage people uh, to your listeners to really, whether you're whether you suffered abuse as a kid or whether you're a parent and have have kids now to turn toward the issue instead of turning away from it the whole problem really at the end of the day is it's easier for people to turn away yeah. and that's what perpetuates the problem that's why kids keep getting abused because it is very tough um, culturally to really look the problem square in the face and say you know what this is a real issue. There are very practical things we can do to help prevent it. And I'm going to tell my youth serving organization or church youth group or summer camp that they've really got to um, do what needs to be done to protect our kids. And, um, you know, kids are not, they can't do it themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's why kids always, you know, they can't vote. They, they can't advocate for themselves at summer camp. And so, you know, they're the ones who get sacrificed. 
uh, because there's this sort of conspiracy of silence around this issue. So the more we talk about it, the more parents talk about it. Uh, and the same way, you know, you talk with your kids and have for a long time about body parts, you know, parents need to be talking with their youth serving organizations about this problem and, uh, and addressing it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we'll keep talking about it. We will keep talking about it. And I, I would love That's to see some changes happen because we can't do this. We can't keep doing this. We can't keep no. hiding. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, for all your great work. Well, thank you so much for joining me. That was trauma survivor Stephen Mills, author of Chosen, a memoir of a boyhood stolen. For more information on Stephen, you can click on that scrolling fortune cookie right there on your screen, and that will send you to his book to purchase. You can also head over to my website, traumasurvivorthriver.com. That's traumasurvivorthriver.com. October's issue of Authentic Insider is out, and November's issue comes out next week. If you haven't already, please subscribe to my email list to get Authentic Insider magazine in your inbox monthly. Thank you so much for joining me today. Join us next week when we talk with uh, the holistic healing expert, nurse, and author Alexandra Ducheva, when we discuss her book, it really is that simple and um, a holistic approach to self confidence, please. You've been listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast on Fireside. I'm Lori Lee Binstock. Thank you so much for being a part of the conversation. Take care.